Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're very happy to welcome Alexander Jaloyan. Did I say your name correctly? I was going to ask you beforehand, but <laughs> I forgot. No, you, you got it. It's, it's Armenian. It's a tough one, but you did it very well, bro. Alexander, I'm so happy to have you on the show. And I know that we're going to have a great conversation. But before we dive into our topic, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What makes you tick? That sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. Um, so my name is Alexander. I grew up in in Los Angeles, um, and I recently uh, got enrolled in a master's program out in the London School of Economics. So spent a year out there studying international development, um, and currently I'm a contributor for Young Voices. You know, so getting to write on uh, different topics that I find interesting. And in addition to that. Um, I do work for an organization called the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. So we do a lot of research on African development, some of the policies that are going on down there um, and ways to promote economic freedom, trade liberalization um, and all those things that bring about kind of sustainable long term growth. So uh, a lot of international focus stuff for me, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but yeah, I grew up in, in the States and have lived here all my life. Well, I love that you have that broader uh, perspective of what's going on you know, around the globe, because this is going to fit very nicely into our topic. I'm looking at an article you've written for townhall.com about how America is great, despite what celebrities might tell you. And I think, Alexander, you're right. It's fashionable right now for celebrities to be pretty down on America and, well, it's not so great. And in fact, you should probably be ashamed if you live there or you grew up there. What is it that drives that, that need to, to be such Debbie Downers? about America yeah. and its history? Yeah, no, no, Brian, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, I think that a lot of times it comes out of a, a um, critical kind of self-lens that we all have. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think a lot of people um, kind of view American history and they see some of the ugly parts of it that are certainly necessary to see. Um, but then in my opinion, they get hyper-focused on those things and completely forsake and forget about all of the other wonderful things that occur. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a catchy title about like, how the celebrities like to bash America and things like that. But it really does, you know, spill over into everyday life and, and people that I've gone to school with. And just a quick example of that, you know, when I was at school in London, um, there's a lot of American students over there. And um, it was a common thing for American students to either be apologizing for the country that they came to or the heritage of the United States. And um, I just think that's a very myopic, incorrect view of history. Um, and while it's good to be, you know, self-aware and 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 want to, um, you know, be critical of ourselves, I think this overly critical kind of self-hatred that I see that we're getting into as a country is really worrying um, and and unfortunate. You know, I felt it too. This last Fourth of July, I I mentioned it, and I felt this. I I heard this from other people. This is the first Fourth of July that I can remember in my lifetime, where it really felt like there was an uncertainty, or, or the the support, the patriotism seemed really tepid. You point out in your article, this is the first time in what thirty three years that NPR actually broke a tradition that they had been doing. What was that tradition? Yeah, yeah. So NPR used to read the Declaration of Independence um, every Fourth of July, and this year they decided to not do that and instead have a conversation about equality um, and you know a, a kind of a diversity type topic. Now, in my opinion, you could certainly do both of those things, but to say that we are going to turn away from something we've been doing for over three decades. Um, it just shows you the, the national mood of the country. And, you know, um, also in the article, you know, I cited this new Gallup poll that came out with patriotism being at an all time low among all, you know, uh, groups, um, Republicans, Democrats, independents, 
Um, everybody seems to be down on the United States. And I just do not think that there's any way you can tell me that, you know, it's a good thing for a country when more and more people in that country seem to be hating the place that they grew up. Um, so it, it definitely is a little bit melancholy. Um, I am an optimistic person, so I hope that over time we can kind of get out of this funk. Um, but it's a worrying trend, and it's a worrying trend that I think we need to be aware of. Um, and that's why I wanted to write this article to kind of get people to see that there are bigger issues going on in the world, um, and the life that we get to live here uh, really is a blessing. You know, I, I came to love America through study of its history. And, and through that study, like you pointed out, I found there were a lot of mistakes. I guess this is what happens when you're dealing with human beings. And, and the yeah. people who helped to build this nation were neither angels nor were they devils, but they were people who sometimes had to make very extraordinarily difficult decisions under difficult circumstances. All things considered, I'm very impressed with what they were able to create and what I've been able to enjoy in my lifetime. I'm just curious, as, as you compare us to the world, and I know you've, you have a pretty good uh, outlook of what things are like uh, around the globe. It's, you, you haven't just lived in a bubble. Why do we, uh, why do we tend to, to be so uh, nonchalant about what we yeah. have compared to what it's like elsewhere? Yeah, no, no, Brian, I think what, exactly what you said you know, needs to be the way that we look at this issue. Because um, when we study American history, yes, there's a lot of ugly that comes up along with that. However, in the comparative perspective, you know, of the 200 plus countries that exist on the earth today, undoubtedly the people that live in America of all races and ethnic backgrounds and, you know, uh, male, female, all that, all the people here get to enjoy so many more rights and freedoms than people um, in other countries. Not saying we're perfect, not saying we shouldn't want to make things better, but I think the reason why people are kind of identifying as less patriotic nowadays is because they do not have a correct view of what actually occurs in other parts of the world. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I do a lot of research on African development. And if anybody just takes 10 minutes and Googles, you know, the latest, you know, violent conflicts that are going on, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, they're heartbreaking. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in countries all over that continent that are displaced, have to deal with terrorism, food insecurity, you know, dirty water, uh, malaria outbreaks. They don't even have COVID vaccines in a lot of places that aren't even available. And so I think it's because we get so focused on the American political news cycle and we have we are, our, our view is quite small. Um, whereas if we opened our eyes a little bit and saw what's going on in Ethiopia with the Tigray crisis, you know, or in South Africa with all of the racial rioting, um, I think it would make us be a little bit more thankful uh, for, for being born in these places and, and being over here, recognizing that we also need to work to make America better, um, but seeing that comparatively, it's just a wonderful place to live. Yeah, it's something you point out, and, and I, I find myself having to make myself stop every so often and say, okay, what am I taking for granted? And, yeah. and it turns out there's quite a bit that we take for granted here in America, isn't there? And absolutely. And that's the thing, too, Brian. I don't want the article to sound like, well, you know, I'm very thankful and you're not. And I'm really, really good at always happy and joyful. But, you know, because obviously there, there are many times in my life where um, I am taking these for granted and I don't think about all the blessings that I have here. Um, but I would say as well, I do think that, you know, I grew up being taught that we should have a general appreciation, you know, for the lives that we have here. Um and the more places I've gone to school, the more people I've talked to that are mostly younger in my age um, and maybe a little bit more left leaning on, on the political spectrum, just seem to have very little regard and very little underlying thankfulness 
um, you know, kind of for, for where we grew up. So hopefully things turn around in the near future. You know, we'll see. Um, but I think that it is something we certainly need to be focused on as a country if we want to keep going. If, you know, if we still want to be a country that's patriotic and um, does positively influence the world. You know, if not, then I guess we can all kind of devolve into self-hatred and, you know, be very <laughs> upset with ourselves. But I hope that doesn't happen. You know, I, I don't think that's what we want America to be. I know I'm stereotyping when I say this, but it seems like the people who are most focused on, well, here's what's wrong and here's why I hate America. This is why I hate myself for being an American. They don't seem to be living very happy lives. And and, yeah. and I, I think what you're saying here is very good advice. You don't have to be, you know, Pollyanna about this and just, you know, ignore things that really do need to be addressed. But But there's a balance to be struck. And in my experience, grateful people seem to be happier people. Yeah. No, Brian, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and I think that it, it's fascinating how we have kind of this new, younger generation of people, mostly my age, maybe a little bit younger, you know, within five or so years, because I'm, I'm 24, um, that just seem to be unable to recognize the need for gratefulness um, and instead just want to tear everything apart and build up whatever kind of utopian idea that they have for what is good. Um not to say that people's ideas can't be valid or helpful, but to say that I know what's best. We need to throw out all of the old traditional stuff. Um, those people that went before us were terrible, evil, horrible, really very bad people. Um, I just think that it, it's a very incorrect view. And I think the best way to describe it is ungratefulness. So I hope people read the article and, you know, we're encouraged a little bit and say, well, you know what? Um, America's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And uh, I should be thankful to, you know, live where I do um, and work hard to make my community, my family, my friends, my relationships better. Um, and if enough people do that, America will become a much better place. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of my overall overall thought. I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about how we sometimes get a case of chronological snobbery and, and we have this yeah, tendency yeah. to believe everything that came before us was wrong. And he says, that's not a good place to be because the people yeah. who came before us did some great things. We can do some great things. We got to realize that we have blind spots just the same as they had blind spots. Alexander, Absolutely. tell us where people can find you and follow you on social media. Absolutely. So um, please follow me on Twitter at A Jaloyan, J E L L O I A N, um, and also at uh, the organization I work for, the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. Just pop that into Google um, and we'll come up and you can kind of see all, all the work we're trying to do um, down in Sub Saharan. Yeah. All right. We've been talking with Alexander Jaloyan. He's a Young Voices contributor and a master's student at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And great to talk with you. I feel energized. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me today. Uh, I hope I'm back on soon. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm very happy to welcome... Jessica Dobrinsky. Sorry, I'm going to get there right. Jessica Dobrinsky, she's joining us today as a uh, contributor to Young Voices. And Jessica, there's more in your background. I wish you'd tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Jessica Dobrinsky. I am a graduate of West Virginia University and uh, American University. And I've been with the Cardinal Institute for West Virginia Policy for two years. I'm the policy analyst, and I also write for the Washington Examiner. Okay. Well, then, if you are part of the Cardinal Institute, you probably know my friend, Jesse. Yes, very well. <laughs> You'll have to give her my regards. Um, so, I understand that there was a lot of reason for celebration in West Virginia. Um, was it earlier this year that the HOPE scholarships were passed? 
that legislation? It was actually last year. It was last year. Okay. Yeah. And, and for those who aren't familiar with the HOPE Scholarship, those who advocate for educational choice will find this something very worthwhile. Tell us a little bit about what that legislation was and what it accomplishes. Yeah, so the HOPE Scholarship was a very monumental piece of educational legislation in West Virginia. And at the time when it was passed, it was actually the most expansive universal ESA that had ever been passed. Um, and if you're not familiar with an ESA, an education savings account is money that is based off of, you know, kind of how much is, is generated from taxes. And the way that West Virginia's HOPE Scholarship works is it's a funding formula. So it's the state tax base that is represented for each child. And a parent has the ability to uh, pull their kids out of the traditional public school system or go for kind of a meshed uh, program and they get $4,300 about. Now, of course, that changes each year, again, with that funding formula. Um, and they're allowed to use that money to fund an education that they see as the one that's best fit for their child. I know the phrase I kept hearing over and over as other people across the country celebrated with West Virginia in the passage of this legislation was that the money will follow the students rather than just the the bureaucracy or the system itself. So what a what a neat thing to experience. I know there was a ton of work that went into it. And now I understand that uh, there's also a bit of a monkey wrench to deal with. Tell me about the injunction that was filed. Yeah, so on July 6th, uh, the Kanawha County Circuit Court issued an injunction on the HOPE Scholarship, which, if you're not familiar with those kind of terms, it halts the program. Right now, the Treasurer's Office um, is essentially functioning as if it doesn't exist because the judge ruled it as um, something that she didn't say was unconstitutional yet, that that court case is still coming, but it's something that could have gotten in the way of, of providing care or proper education. Um, so, of course, they had to stop it. Now, with the stoppage 60, 30 days before the, the school year, depending on what county you're in, that means parents who had previously planned to use these monies for private school, homeschool, whatever it is that they went with, um, are now forced to figure out other options, whether that be use money out of their own pocket, which if you're counting on $4,300, that might, <laughs> uh, you know, be tough or decide to re-enroll their child into the public school system. Wow. That is that is quite a blow to those parents and students who are looking forward to real educational choice. I have to ask this. I know that there was opposition in uh, in the um, efforts to pass this HOPE scholarship legislation. Is it, Are these the forces that are responsible for, for getting this injunction in place to stop it? Oh, certainly. And, you know, even prior to the HOPE scholarships, creation back in 2019, um, there was actually another school choice movement that brought about charter schools. Now, of course, that did pass, but there's some constraints on that, um, but we never got the ESA. And even back then, there were a lot of people pushing against that, primarily the teachers' unions. Um, they are not happy with how the money is divvied out. Um, they're telling a lot of inaccurate information, of course, to to portray the HOPE scholarship in a way that it's not. For instance, they're saying that the money is taken away um, from the schools, which in part, it that is true. However, $4,300 is not, is not what is actually covered for each child. It's more like 11000 And so the money that comes from the federal government or um, from your local ordinances and, and things like that actually stay with the public school system. So you're having more money 
uh, to cover each each child. So again, that's just not very accurate information. Jessica, I don't want to sound like a skeptic, but I'm having a hard time <laughs> believing that these teachers unions, among others, are are really interested in the quality of education that these students are receiving. And 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 I think it's what it sounds like to me is they're more interested in maintaining their power, their authority, their influence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, West Virginia, if if you're familiar with kind of the landscape, especially with with worker freedom and things like that, has for a long time been dominated by unions. And I think there's a lot of good things that may have come out of that previously. But now it's a, a hold on power, putting more money in their pockets, um, not really looking out for the benefits of teachers or students. That's something else that people are really forgetting is we are focusing on students because it, it's very, very important. Uh, considering our outcomes in education. However, this is providing a ton of flexibility for teachers now um, to really make sure that they can provide a good, safe classroom environment as well. Why is it that uh, teachers unions and others within the the public school establishment are so resistant to the idea of of competition? Because it sounds like that's what this scholarship would have introduced is school choice, which would have brought along some competition, different educational paths for the kids. Why do they resist this so hard? It's very much an old, outdated mindset that is kind of popular in West Virginia of uh, change is bad no matter what it is. And of course, both sides of the political spectrum are guilty of that. But I think the problem is that, again, teachers unions have continuously said that they're for the teachers, they're for the students, they're for a quality education. And time and time again, when it's put to the test, that's just not the truth. Um, If we allow parents to have more say in their education, if we have a, a better population when it comes to education and and teachers have more autonomy, there's no longer a need for teacher unions. Um, So, of course, they're going to do whatever they can to to hold on to it. So, tell me again, the the outcome of this is waiting for for a lawsuit to to play out. What's the time frame on that? Yeah, so they issued the injunction on July 6th. However, that was not the actual, uh, the hearing of the case. So, Uh, A lot of people have been reporting that the judge ruled it as unconstitutional. That's not the truth. Um, She just issued the injunction again. So um, we're waiting on that. However, the attorney general's office in the state issued a motion for stay, which would was an appeal to the uh, intermediate appellate court. And um, that would relieve the injunction and still allow the lawsuit to go through, but provide the necessary relief for these parents. Um, But that's not expected to really be heard, just given typical court timelines. Um, So yeah, it looks like parents will not be having the Hope Scholarship this year, sadly. Man, that's got to be tough for those parents. Is is there any kind of relief for them, or are they pretty much just left holding the bag? Yeah, so we've been reaching out to a ton of parents, um, just making sure that they have the resources, putting them in contact with the proper people who who can provide some help. There's other organizations that are offering temporary scholarships. Um, some of the schools that had previously accepted students dependent on the HOOP scholarship are 
or working with some financial aid options and things like that. So there definitely are ways to remedy this issue temporarily, but of course it's a very slim population that's going to be able to to have it still. Is this having ripple effects too, though? The, the I mean, and I'm not talking necessarily the, the injunction and, and the chaos that, that has come from that, but the passage of this, this HOPE scholarship, is this sending waves to other states that are likewise uh, trying to prioritize educational choice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I've had many conversations with people in Virginia who were very much interested in going and in going further with their educational opportunities and looked a lot towards West Virginia and the Hope Scholarship um, and have used it many times as a basis. So we're, although we're not happy with the injunction, we're excited about what education looks like in West Virginia and across the country in the future. Okay, again, we are talking with Jessica Dobrinsky. Um, Jessica, where can people find you online? Where can they follow you on social media? Yeah, so you can follow me on LinkedIn, again, Jessica Dobrinsky. And then you can also reach out to me um, at my email, jessica at cardinalinstitute.com. All right, keep up the good work. Keep a stiff upper lip, pip, pip, and all that. Uh, <laughs> I, I really hope that you guys prevail on this. I know a ton of work went into it, and it would be wonderful to see that uh, the Hope Scholarships prevail. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Micah Safeston joining us now. And Micah, in, condi- in addition to being a contributor to Young Voices, it sounds like you wear a few other hats. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I work at the Utah Water Research Lab in, in Logan, Utah. It's part of Utah State University. I am the communications and outreach coordinator there. Uh, and then in my, my own time, I, I write about uh, water issues in Utah and throughout the West um, and, and other things in, in Utah politics. Okay, and boy, water issues, <laughs> they are definitely timely right now. Uh, we are in the midst of a drought. In fact, maybe you could put some uh, perspective into this for us. Um, sure. I know it's very dry. I know that there are great water concerns and have been actually for a couple of years now. What's the, the current state of this drought throughout Utah and the Intermountain West? Sure. Um, well, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, the, the the Great Salt Lake here in Utah is is a is of significant concern here in Utah because it uh, its lake bed when it when as the lake dries, the lake bed exposes toxic uh, ke- toxic chemicals and and toxic dust that gets kicked up in the wind, and so that's of special concern in Utah. But the uh, the Colorado River is is also very very low right now. Um, both Lake Mead and Lake Powell, uh, particularly Lake Powell, are are very close to the points where they can no longer generate hydroelectric power. So we need to get water in those reservoirs as well as in the Great Salt Lake. Um, and so those are are of special concern here in the West. Yeah, I've I've seen some pictures of both Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And there just aren't words to describe how low that, that yeah. water is. Now, there's also a lot of growth, though, and a lot of development going on in Utah, as well as other areas of the Intermountain West. And I know sometimes we face this conundrum of, well, you know, we need to keep growing to stay healthy. You know, you want to be vital and growing. But 
when the water concerns come up, sometimes I know there have been concerns that people aren't really paying for water what uh, what they should be paying for water. Talk to me about how uh, drought should be reflected in the price for water, even if that means raising property taxes. Right. So, so we all want growth. Um, well, most of us want growth in some way. It, it benef- We all understand how it benefits uh, the economy, and uh, but. When, when water is effectively subsidized, that growth um, it kind of gives us a, a false sense of, of uh, optimism and that we see that the growth in Utah and we think, oh, Utah has room to grow. Um, but when water is, is um, unnecessarily pr- priced unnecessarily low, then the, that, that growth looks easy. It looks possible when it's not that there are, there are downsides to that. And I'm not, I'm certainly not anti-growth, but, uh, the, the price of water needs to reflect its scarcity. And, and so, um, I was in the Salt Lake Tribune this over the, this last weekend, writing about a policy that would effectively increase the price of water um, so that the growth can become a little bit more manageable, a little bit more sustainable. Okay, so I'm curious what the reaction is. I, I read your piece in the Tribune. I think it's very well reasoned, but I'm sure there are some people having serious heartburn over the idea. What? Slow down our growth. What kind? What kind of uh, feedback have you received from those who've read your article? It's actually surprisingly positive. Uh, I, I think most people here in Utah understand that conservation needs to happen. Um, what the difficult part is 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 when you talk about raising the price of water, that means that that's something that needs to be done by by municipal governments primarily. They set those prices, and um, and that that's very difficult because it's it kind of is, is similar to the the NIMBYism debate or, or YIMBYism, um, the, the not in my backyard where we want affordable housing, just not where I live. Right. We want. We want to raise the price of water, just not where I live. Um, for everyone else, needs to conserve, not me. And and so that's why it, in this particular policy that I looked at, it was a state level policy, um, and and it would actually affect property taxes rather than your actual water bill. I'm fine with raising the price of water, municipalities. In fact, that's what I, that's precisely what I want. But politically, it's it's more difficult. And so, unfortunately, we we need to go to the state legislatures. And the state legislature, I know in Utah, um, where, where I just am a little bit more familiar, the state legislatures, I th- the state legislature, I think is is more open to to those conservation measures than local governments. What about uh, the builders? And I know I know the building industry and realty. You know, they, these are pretty strong lobbying groups as far as uh, exercising special interest power within the the legislative halls. Are, are they in agreement with this? Do they see the wisdom, or does this uh, threaten them? Uh, as far as I can tell, they have. I, I don't know if there is a a unified. Uh, response from the building industry in Utah. Um, what's ironic is, is one of the biggest champions of water conservation in Utah and getting water in the Great Salt Lake is Utah's um, uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Brad Wilson, who represents uh, an area of Utah that's adjacent to the Great Salt Lake. He is himself a property developer and, and, and a very influential property developer. Uh, the same is true with the president of, of the Utah Senate. Um, and, and they're, they're both outspoken um, advocates of the Great Salt Lake and, and are trying to, to 
get these measures in place when they, they are themselves property developers. So I actually think that, that there is, that's why I say there's actually a positive, um, a positive response um, to this. So I, I don't see much pushback from, from builders, even though they may have an incentive to push back. Is Utah in a fairly good place when it comes to uh, water conservation? In other words, um, I know that water is is tough to come by. The snowpack has been very, very low for now for, for a couple of years. But when it comes to, uh, for instance, groundwater, is Utah in a better condition than some of the other states around it? I would say no. On the whole, no. Um, I, I think that there is a, as of late in the last few years, there's been a lot of movement in the right direction. But on the whole, there's still a lot to do. Uh, groundwater is is probably just in is something that is just as uh, a dire situation as as surface water, um, and 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 actually much of of Utah's drinking water is groundwater, um, and so it, I I would say there's still a long way to go. Utah uses uh, a lot more water per capita. Than neighboring states, um, and a big part of that, I think, is just a cultural thing. Um, it it we kind of live as though we were back east, but we're not, um, and we need to we need to look more like our our other western neighbors, like Las Vegas and Arizona. Las Vegas is is one of the better parts of the American West for conserving water, and I think Utah would do well to to look to, to Las Vegas. So would that mean less green lawns, more xeriscaping and that sort of thing? That that is part of it. However, I, I think that is uh that that's part of it, but there's it's only a fraction of of the, the water use in Utah. Agriculture is a big part. And and this may be politically where where there is less enthusiasm in the state of Utah is to to get into that uh, that that issue of, of agricultural water use. Um, there's a lot. It's not as bad as as some might say, but uh, there is a lot of innovation happening in agricultural uh, contexts. But there's still a long way to go. Okay. Yeah. I. I... I live in farm country, so I, I understand what you're saying. I, I see the water going around the clock, and there's times I wonder um, where I am in southern Idaho, where does this all come from? <laughs> you know, is there going to be enough? Yeah. Um, so, would it mean farmers would end up paying more for, for the water that they use? I think that, that is probably the, the place, to, one place to start. And it's, it's a difficult subject because there is a lot of, of support for agriculture in Utah, just political support. But that that is probably an issue that needs to be broached to better incentivize some of the innovation that is already happening. There's a lot of innovative techniques to, to conserve water in, in agricultural contexts, but we need to incentivize it more than we are. Well, and I applaud you for taking the approach of using consumption as a basis for for if you know if, if someone's going to be paying more, it should be based on you know who's consuming more versus you know instead of just you know spreading that out across everybody. Um, just out of curiosity, we've got about a minute left here. Who is most supportive and who pushes back the hardest against the kind of reforms that you're talking about? Um, I think that that the people who are most supportive are those who are are looking at this issue kind of more practically, not not trying to to end life as we know it. 
um, completely outlaw farming in Utah. That's that's absurd. Um, and those are ultimately the the voices that are going to uh, end up costing more than than what they you know that they're going against their own cause. Um, and and I think those the 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 voices who are the most helpful, I, I guess that that kind of answers both sides of the question, is uh, the, the voices who insist on just just completely upending life as we know it are, are going against their own cause. Okay, we are talking with Micah Safeston. He is a, a contributor to Young Voice as well as Communications and Outreach Coordinator at the Utah Water Research Laboratory. Micah, great to visit with you. I hope we talk again soon. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Amanda Griffiths to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor and also a PhD student at UCLA. Amanda, welcome. Anything else you want to tell us about yourself, who you are, what makes you tick? Well, uh, not really. I've just started with Young Voices, and thanks so much for having me on, Brian. Uh, I am currently working on uh, writing on international policy, foreign policy, as well as monetary financial regulation, uh, and education policy as well with Young Voices. I was really intrigued by the article that I saw that you'd written for International Policy Digest, and the headline was, Biden inches toward the right move on tariffs for the wrong reasons. And I'll yeah. admit, I'm not a fan of tariffs. I, you know, I, I like to think I'm one of those people that really, I, I want real free trade and tariffs, as I understand it, don't really help us, especially where we're having some economic uh, <clears throat> difficulties, to, to put it mildly. Talk to me about uh, how is Biden moving the right direction, but uh, what, what's the, where is he getting his reasoning wrong? Sure. So Biden's main motivation for possibly in cutting down on tariffs, and it would really just be a fraction of the tariffs that the Trump administration levied against China affecting consumer goods. These are called Section 301 tariffs. His rationale is that he wants to curb inflation. Unfortunately, this is very unlikely to work. First of all, because the main drivers of inflation are not consumer goods like bicycles, which is what these tariffs would affect. Uh, there are things like fuel prices, lodging. There are things like housing. And especially with the price of fuel, as long as fuel continues to go up or be where it is, prices across the board are going to be high. So when you try to affect these kind of point of sale tariffs, it's really not going to have much of an impact, especially when consumer demand is high across the board. So it's a tiny little slice off the top. What really needs to be happening is we need to be looking at actual manufacturing tariffs and policy measures across the board that would bring prices down. Just out of curiosity, were, were the majority of these tariffs passed under the Trump administration? They were, yes. This is about $10 billion worth of $370 billion worth of tariffs. So again, it's a tiny little fraction uh, of, of the Trump tariffs. Now, I know Trump's uh, justification ostensibly was, well, I'm just trying to protect American jobs. Um, I like in your article, you come right out and you just point out tariffs don't work. Could you walk us through why they don't work? Tariffs don't work in particular because 
our, our global system is interconnected, right? So first of all, we're all going to benefit from freer trade, but also because if you look at what's happened since these tariffs were put in motion, this really hasn't had an effect on changing China's posture internationally. And when I say China, I'm referring to the Chinese Communist Party because obviously everything that happens in China vis-a-vis trade, vis-a-vis governance, goes through them. So first of all, the CCP continues to exploit uh, its its status as a developing country. It's a self-declared developing country uh, with the WTO. This allows it to subsidize preferred industries, give it a leg up on the global market. The CCP, China, is not by any standards that we would consider a developing country, and certainly not when you look at the pool of other developing countries in the WTO. So it's continuing to exploit this ambiguous status in the WTO. It's also uh, continuing to steal intellectual property. In fact, uh, in May, there was a U.S. security firm called Cyber Reason, and they came out and uh, showed that there was this group of CCP-supported hackers that had stolen trillions of dollars worth of intellectual property from defense, from pharmaceutical, from energy, from tech corporations. That campaign is still active. And then, of course, I think we, a lot of us know that TikTok, there was was this bombshell BuzzFeed report that uh, China-based employees of TikTok's parent company have been able to access non-public data from TikTok users. That's important because if employees in China can see users' private data, the CCP can see users' private data. So this has not helped with any in any respect to quell anything that the CCP are doing uh, internationally, anything that they're doing vis-a-vis the environment, if we want to talk about that. It just hasn't been effective. And usually tariffs are not effective when we try to flex against totalitarian authoritarian regimes. Wow. I'm I'm shocked to learn that, uh, you know, China claims that developing country status. I mean, isn't this akin to parking in a handicapped space? You know, when there are there are people who really could use that space, but I just didn't want to walk as far, you know. A little bit. Yeah. It's like, oh, I sprained my pinky finger. And so, you know, I I don't want to, you know, I, I, I don't want to walk that far. Exactly. It's it, it it's very, very exploitative and it's not justified at all. So what uh, I mean, you mentioned inflation is really an entirely separate issue from um, from the the import and the the uh, the commerce, you know, back and forth between nations. Um, what should happen, first of all, on the tariff front? What what would you like to see happen in terms of uh, U.S. Uh, trade policy? And uh, and then we can talk more about you know what what we could be doing economically you know to deal with inflation and and a few other factors. Sure, I mean I'm with you, Brian. I don't think that tariffs work. Tariffs, time and time again, have proven to be ineffective. They're virtue signaling, sure, but they don't really have an impact. I would want to see tariffs lifted, uh, and in particular. If, if we want to target a particular group of tariffs to lift, if, if we want to say, okay, just, just one group, it actually shouldn't be the ones on the consumer goods. What we need to be looking at is we need to be looking at manufacturing goods. We need to be looking at steel tariffs. We need to be looking at the things that we use to make products. Now, of course, 
lifting tariffs across the board would be excellent. Lifting them on consumer goods would be excellent. But when we're seeing demand go up everywhere, when we're seeing suppliers uh, that need things to make products, then we want to bring down those prices as well. So I would want to see just a wholesale revision of our policy toward tariffs, um, especially where China is concerned. Okay, and and you mentioned specifically in your article, and this is one that seemed to make a lot of sense. Was uh, once upon a time, the rare earth uh, metal industry in the U.S. was a thriving thing. I think China has kind of cornered the market on that here of late. It has, in fact, it's completely reversed. Right, so until 1980. 99% of the world's heavy rare earth metals, I should explain what we're talking about when we say rare earths. So these are the things, uh, these are the, the minerals that are found in batteries, that are found in tech equipment, that are found in military equipment. Uh, they kind of power our world right now. And they're found by the way they, they're charging our electric cars. So rare earth metals are essential. Uh, about 99% were produced from U.S. mining operations. Then in 1980, that statistic began to flip completely. So today, CCC, CCP, pardon me, CCP-backed enterprises produce upwards of 99% of all rare earth metals, and that includes those used in the U.S. military's weapons systems. This is because in 1980, the International Atomic Energy Agency changed the definition of source material for nuclear weapons to include heavy rare earth byproducts. This was a bit of an overstep, especially because we have much, uh, much safer manufacturing uh, regulations and it's much safer processes today. But uh, this allowed, this made the cost of manufacturing and production just so high. The, you know, the risks were so high in terms of overhead that we just stopped. We sort of shut down our mining operations, and then that has now gone to China, and they've cornered the market. Wow, I can see where that might come back to bite us too. Yeah. What about yeah, exactly? What about uh, if, if, for example, the um, if U.S. lawmakers were to uh, to limit or eliminate tariffs, for that matter, would that actually reach the consumer? I mean, would would we see would we see lower prices? Eventually, we would. But again, because there's so much that's driving up inflation that's not imported, again, gas, food, lodging, that's where we need to be focused right now. So again, it wouldn't be a panacea, as Janet Yellen recently said. We need to be doing a lot more in a lot of other areas. And we also need to be working on making it easier for businesses and for manufacturers to work and to do business and set up shop here. This needs to be a much more wholesale approach. Well, I got to tell you, it's very refreshing to hear someone standing up for the free market and, and in particular for, for lifting some of the regulatory burdens that are actually making it tougher you know, to be competitive out there internationally. Again, we're talking with Amanda Griffiths. Amanda, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media? On social media, you can find me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff, so A-J-A-X the G-R-I-F-F. Uh, and that's where you can find me, and I'm going to continue to write for Young Voices. All right. I'm very happy to have you uh, as a Young Voices contributor. This was uh, fun talking with you. Hope we get a chance to visit again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian.